At the close of the 19th century, new American corporate and statistical systems were built around the promise of protecting people from financial ruin. But along the way, they developed into systems for changing people too, body and mind. Dan Bauck's book, How Our Days Became Numbered, Risk, and the Rise of the Statistical Individual, gives an exciting new history of life and At the close of the 19th century, new American corporate and statistical systems were built around the promise of protecting people from financial ruin. But along the way, they developed into systems for changing people too, body and mind. Dan Bauck's book, How Our Days Became Numbered, Risk, and the Rise of the Statistical Individual, gives an exciting new history of life insurance and American life more broadly. The book was published by University of Chicago Press in 2015. Bauck is Assistant Professor of History at Colgate University and member of the Working Group, Historicizing Big Data, at the Max Planck Institute for History of Science. I'm Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I interviewed Bauck along with graduate students as a capstone project for my course, New Approaches to Science and Technology Studies. So in, in the interview, you'll also hear from Betsy Galenti, Alonzo Jones, Julianne Locker, Mira Nagerset, Saber Rucker, Leah Samples, Rachel Turner, and Danielle Wilfong. So this is Laura Stark, and I'm really happy to be talking with Dan Bauck about his really wonderful new book, How Our Days Became Numbered. It's a book about the American life insurance industry, and it focuses in particular on the period between the Gilded Age and the New Deal. Um, now, Dan, what you show in a lot of the book is that there were uh, different ways of making decisions about how to value people's lives. And the real inflection point in the book, it seems to be, are the Armstrong hearings in 1905. And before that period of time, there are a lot of things that were really up for grabs about how to value people's lives. I wonder if you could just start off by saying um, a few words about the kinds of things, the sorts of methods, uh, the kinds of companies that were really up for grabs before 1905. Right. So I think of this moment before 1905 as a, as a time in which the life insurance uh, contract, the policy, has become uh, what's going to be called by contemporaries a crucial commodity. Uh, it is something that if you are a little bit wealthier, you pay once a year, you get a, you a premium once a year, you get what's called an ordinary policy. And the purpose of this in many ways is to allow wealth to travel through families. It also allows for the the separate spheres of gender to, to exist. The idea here being that a single male breadwinner whose life is increasingly not bound to the land uh, or bound to inherited wealth, but bound instead to commercialized labor, that that male can perpetuate himself and the role he plays in his family even after his death. Uh, it also then becomes incredibly important for a variety of other economic activities. You cannot take out a mortgage often without a life insurance policy in the 19th century and increasingly sometimes still today. Uh, you cannot uh, gain access to effective investments in many cases, except via life insurance, which is one of these, uh, the historian Tim Elborn has called uh, the life insurance company the kind of first mutual fund or, or the early people who ran these, the first mutual fund managers, because it was a way in which smaller folk could invest in and gain benefits from uh, larger groups of people. Uh, but then after 1873, what's really important too is increasingly ordinary workers, ordinary men, women, and children uh, across lines that tend to 
sever American society in the 19th century, lines of class and race, all have access increasingly to this essential commodity. Uh, so that's answering in some, some little the stakes behind it, it's like why it is that life insurance, just to begin with, is a matter of uh, importance to the political economy. Yeah, so to hop in here, um, it seems like before that period, um, their life insurance was becoming incredibly important. And among the other things it did for um, gender divisions of labor and class-based differences, it also institutionalized a form of um, racial discrimination. So I wonder if you could um, talk a bit about this and maybe even tell us the story of Julius, uh, is it Chappelle? Um, and the the court case that you that you talk about, right? Uh, so this was one of these um, wonderful moments. I'm, I'm going to go with Julius Chappelle. I'm not entirely sure how you pronounced his name, um, but he was one of these folks who I just happened across. Uh, some other scholars uh, had figured out that there was an anti-discrimination. Uh, a set of anti-discrimination laws that were passed in the North in the 1890s, um, 1880s, 1890s. And the general idea here is that uh, after the United States started trying to sell policies to workers, to working uh, men, women, and to children in working class families, uh, a number of the larger companies, one called the Prudential in the United States, uh, another, the Metropolitan, um, both of which are forerunners to today's Prudential and today's MetLife, respectively, uh, they started to be find themselves insuring a large number of African-Americans, which apparently they had not foreseen was about to happen um, when they went into this business. And there are a number of different kind of explanations for what exactly happens next. But at some level, it seems that they were spooked. Uh, and so having been only insuring African-Americans for a very short period of time, they um, commissioned some studies to try to figure out if African-American mortality was indeed higher than that of the rest of their policyholders. Um, and they determined from very bare bones statistics that they thought that it was, and they instituted a form of discrimination. Uh, this story we knew to a certain extent. Uh, what became interesting was trying to figure out exactly why and how then people push back against the, this racial discrimination. And it was interesting to me not only uh, because I'm an American historian and I'm interested in the Reconstruction era uh, and trying to figure out how and why racial discrimination was both fought and still instantiated, both in the North and the South, but also interesting because it um, showed us a way in which anti-corporate feeling played in with these arguments that pushed back against the statistization of lives. And one of the things uh, that so um, Chappelle's a key figure here. Yeah, please go ahead. One of the things that was um, really interesting was a way that uh, people were pushing back at the level of the method used to actually calculate. Um, the value of lives. So the difference between classing that you described early on and smoothing, and that these seem like, um, you know, uh, pardon me, but kind of boring math practices, but actually they were, they were really um, uh, had, had uh, overtones of real moral and political debates within them during that time period. So could you just explain the difference between classing and smoothing, which I understand to be a, basically a moving average, as, as you put it, and what sort of the political or moral ways of reading classing versus smoothing uh, were for, at the period? 
Yeah. All right. Um, but let, let me do a, a couple of things because I didn't quite answer your first question, and I'll, but I'll, I'll bring it into answering the second one because politics is what this is all about in some ways. What Julia Chappelle does in Massachusetts to get the anti-discrimination law passed is he and his colleagues attack the statistics. They say essentially that you cannot use statistics from the past, from slavery, to predict the future of African Americans in the United States. That something serious has happened, and that no longer can the past predict the future. There's been a rupture. And in this way, what they're doing is pushing against one of the fundamental logics of the life insurance industry, that in fact, what you can do for a population is look at the past and use it to predict what's going to happen to people in the future. And that's a powerful logic and one that the insurers rest upon, but is challenged effectively uh, within the states. And I say it also, I showed it has some kind of tragic implications, but we don't have to go into that at the moment. Um, the classing and smoothing thing has similar sorts of very large political implications, which is that to class is to be worried about the individual. Uh, to smooth is to be worried about the broad mass. There's no way to do statistics without classing and smoothing together. A life table is fundamentally a a thing which says at any given age, there's going to be a different rate, average rate by which people die. And so that is already classing individuals into a bunch of different age groups and then, say, then giving an average, a smooth average of how many people are dying at that age. But the question in the 19th century is often a fight over, should we do more classing? Should we break people up into finer and finer groups? Or should we rely on greater smoothing, build larger communities? And the implications there should feel a little, at some level kind of obvious that the more you class, the more you individualize, the more you individuate, the more you smooth, the more you build solidarities, you, the more you build large groups, bigger tents. Dan, this is Saber. I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit, ask you more about how these insurance agencies could become so successful. So we talked a little bit about the pushback that happened, but I'm curious to know, what do you think would have happened if the medical authorities and corporate America wouldn't have um, bought in to the insurance agency and to the classing and the smoothing? If the... So what would have happened if the if the doctors hadn't been in on the game, essentially? Right. Yeah. Um, well, to some extent, they weren't. Uh, this is one of the stories of the American popular life. Is there were some doctors who said these fancy actuaries and their mathematicians are crazy, right? So there's no reason to believe that their data about thousands of people should apply to any one person. We as doctors look at the individual and we know things about them that are different, that are separate from the, what you know about them as part of a larger population. And so some companies like American Popular Life tried to give more authority to doctors and took away authority from uh, precisely those kinds of mathematical uh, frameworks. And they, they had some kind of wonderful phrases of talking about the mathematicians as these, these kind of... Um, experts who are hiding behind their fancy mathematics. But for the most part, as you're indicating, the life insurance companies depended on doctors to do the work for them of examining individuals and for the most part, finding ways to say that they were average or normal, or if they weren't, to determine to what degree they weren't normal enough that they wouldn't be allowed into a, into a into a policy. The, the general idea here being that most companies would accept around 
80% of those that they looked as standard uh, policyholders, and then they had that extra 20% to play with, either rejecting some part portion of them or giving them specialized, personalized contracts. Dan, one of the things that I found so um, impressive and convincing about the book was the way you deal with the concept of risk. Um, so risk and control seem to be two of the big key um, key. Uh, terms for the whole book. And conventionally, just reading in the history of medicine literature, you would think that the concept of risk really originated with the medical profession. But what you're showing is the way in which uh, insurance industries originated uh, this concept and ways of calculating it and absorb the medical profession into this corporate structure. Um, so I just wanted to flag that as, as something that as a reader, I found really interesting. Um, and so you, you've talked a bit about the methods of, of classing and, and smoothing. And um, one of the, the other key figures, I guess, that you identify is what you call the statistical individual. And so this, of course, uh, for some listeners might bring up uh, the resonances of the work of Ian Hacking and Ted Porter, other people who have thought about um, the rise of statistics in the late 19th century. So uh, these guys are, are sort of uh, cited and appreciated throughout the book. But I wonder if you could just you know, fill us in. Are you, do you feel like you're sort of standing on the shoulders of giants or are you turning them on their heads? Um, I would never dare to turn Ian Hacking and Ted Porter on their heads, although that image is lovely. I liked uh, it too. No, I'm, <laughs> I, I was both inspired and guided by both of their works. Um, and in part, what's useful to them for me is, as I, I think of myself as a historian of science, but also very much a, a historian of U.S. intellectual and cultural history, of U.S. history of capitalism. And they gave me tools that helped me look at problems that existed in those fields in a different way. At the same time, I do think there's there's a ways in which I could think of as extending the work of hacking and port or, or modifying it a bit. For hacking, I think what the book does is it tries to expose a new species of the kinds of uh, activities that he describes, particularly in talking about the avalanche of printed numbers. And there is that his story is very much one of individuals coming to fit within categories created by bureaucracies. And what I see myself doing in this book is trying to explain the moment and the way by which individuals either placed themselves or were placed into distributions, not just categories, but the idea of a statistical distribution and how that norm was one in which people increasingly had to try and find themselves within it. Um, and also for hacking, I think the book is trying to tell a change over time score story, which is that for the 19th century, my story and a hacking story, they fit quite well together. Uh, by the 20th century, increasingly we're seeing the shift where uh, the story is not solely about taking individuals and fitting them within the statistics. It is about using the statistics as a form of active management to reshape the individual's lives. Um, yeah. So I can talk more about Porter, but I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, actually, um, after 1905, uh, after the Armstrong hearings, this is when the, the book really sort of takes on a sort, of, a sort of pleasant kind of Foucauldianism and thinking about yeah. biopolitics. And I guess this makes perfect sense um, if we think of it in terms of Ian Hacking, since he is yeah, using so much of, of Foucault. So it seems like 1905 is one of the key inflection points because it's when life insurance 
corporations start using their tools uh, to rehabilitate their image, it seems like, using public health activists, and to rehabilitate their image by uh, also bettering their bottom line. So making people start to do things to keep them healthier, which is better for the industry, but also makes them look look pretty good. And so it seems like there's a lot of um, bio biopolitics that come in after, or it's a nice story of biopolitics after 1905. Does that seem about right to you? Yeah, indeed. They're, they are bettering their bottom lines by reshaping our bottom lines, uh, if you will. Uh, so the, the idea here is that after the 1905 investigations, the, the companies are a wreck in some sense. They it has gone very badly, especially for these five largest companies at the time: uh, the New York Life, the Equitable, the Mutual of New York, MetLife, or what we call the Metropolitan at that point, and Prudential. And for them, uh, they're not entirely sure what to do. It's but it's uh, an unforeseen consequence that some folks in and around the Metropolitan, especially, would come to have these alliances with some health reformers who recognize the cultural power and also the financial power of these life insurance companies and convince them to take the tools they've been using to make risks and now try to use those to reshape the behavior of those who they insure. Uh, the funny thing about this is that the historiography up to this point has said that after this point, the the insurers become boring in a sense. They're the, in, in the way we talk about wanting to have finance banks be boring today, that they're making, they're taking fewer financial risks. They are uh, not expanding so quickly as they were before. They seem to be uh, regulating themselves better, that they've foregone certain kinds of power that they held in the financial system in the late 19th century. But what I see here is in fact that they've displaced that power. They might have uh, given up on some amount of financial power, although that's up for some debate, but they've gained data power, they've gained biopower, they've gained uh, power over people's lives they didn't have otherwise. Yeah, and Dan, this is Danielle. I was just wondering um, if you could take us a little bit through how you created this book. Um, in the preface, you talked a little bit about strange books that you encountered and how they have um, inspired you to do this work. So other than the work of um, Ian Hacking and others. Um, can you talk a little bit about these books? Okay, sorry, I didn't, I missed just the end of that. Can talk a little bit about the books. Oh, the strange book? Yes. Oh, yes, I would love to. Um, so this was a series of the contingencies that we write about in a sense. Um, the first book that I ran into was while I was writing a a, uh, an article about vaulting's mosquito eradication, and I came across this book about mosquito eradication by the statistician Frederick Hoffman, who was working for the Prudential Life Insurance Company. And I thought to myself, that is a very strange thing for a life insurance statistician to be doing, to be heading this major public health operation. Or at least I thought it was strange. Turns out it is not strange. Uh, but of course, next to that book on the shelf was uh, uh, Louis Dublin and Alfred Lotka's Money Value of a Man, which is a startling title, at least to my ears, and more startling because I looked at those names and I knew who Alfred Lotko was from the history of ecology and I again did not expect him to be talking about valuing lives and dollars and did I expect to find that he worked for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company which other scholars knew but was news to me uh, and that began a kind of cascade of 
ideas and questions for me. Why are life insurance companies involved so heavily in public health? Why and how are they changing the way in which all kinds of people across society are valuing and thinking about lives and dollars? And from there, the book well, it was a long, a long time, but I kept working at it. Damn, that's really funny. So what you're saying is we started with mosquitoes and now we're talking about life insurance policies. So can you speak a little bit more about this cascading of ideas and tell me when that light bulb went off for you, um, that there was such a connection between the life insurance policies and public health? I guess one of the things I would say is that that thing that became quite obvious fairly early on that there must be some connection between public health and life insurance companies because once once you started digging a little bit it became clear that folks like Louis Dublin and Frederick Hoffman were deeply involved were presidents of the American Public Health Association uh, were regularly publishing on these topics so the question instead became more about narrative, about how and why to explain the way this happened. In my dissertation, when I first tried to make a crack at this, one of my readers, I think it was probably Ted Porter, said to me, well, this is interesting, but it, it ends kind of by seeming like the, there was this bad thing called discrimination through life insurance, and suddenly they started making everyone's lives better. And that's the story you're trying to tell. And I thought, well, I don't actually think that's the story I'm trying to tell. Uh, and there, it was a kind of long process. Uh, of first finding characters, finding characters like Julia Chappelle, who helped me understand the way in which there was a widespread resistance to this idea of individuals being understood through statistics in the 19th century. And then once I realized that in, indeed the story of the 19th century was not about the untrammeled charge of statistical thinking over individuals, but instead this long contested march, I suddenly had a new way of understanding why it was that it was so powerful that life insurers' tools of thinking about individuals as statistics could be used in something like public health. Because now, when you can say, hey, look, we're not turning you into a statistic. We're not thinking about you through statistical lenses because we're trying to charge you more money, because we're trying to discriminate against you. We're trying to do it because it's for your own good. This turns out to be a, a very powerful and a surprisingly popular argument, surprising even to the people who are extending the argument. You had another great character in the in the form of Charles Ives, uh, and I I think that's probably one of my favorite chapters called uh, "Valuing Lives in Four Movements" uh, because you set it up as um, a music piece, and it's just it's kind of funny, Dan. Um, and so I I like that you are uh, that you are sort of. Uh, improvising with your own writing style. And I just really, really liked it. But it also fits um, as a great case of a character. So Charles Ives, who was one of the resistors during this um, early 20th century, what what turned out to be kind of a, a, something of a march towards exception, uh, acceptance of the life insurance practices. So could you um, describe a bit both that chapter, but also what the obvious case shows us. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, this is one of these places which I, I might have come to this on my own, but uh, my own biography plays into it. My wife's an opera singer, and so we spent a lot of time hanging around musicians. And 
I, although I tried to avoid telling them that I study insurance as long as possible, it would inevitably come up and they would inevitably say, oh, Charles Ives ran one of the most important uh, life insurance agencies. So they don't usually get exactly right what it is, but they knew that he was some important uh, life insurance muckety-muck. And indeed he was. And when I was in the, uh, the archives of the Mutual of New York, which graciously allowed me access to a number of their files for a number of months, I found a box that contained the papers of Charles Ives from his agency run through the Mutual of New York. And it was there that I realized that he wrote this pamphlet. Ives did not himself do a lot of selling of life insurance policies. He didn't actually apparently like talking to people all that much, at least trying to sell to people. But he was the, the chief for training other life insurance salesmen. And in that sense, I, I hesitate to call him one of the resistors so much as he was one of the great evangelists of the idea of turning the individual into the statistical, uh, writing this piece called The Amount to Carry or measuring the prospect, which explained to his all his salesmen the proper way to convince an individual that he, in this case, it was almost always he being sold a very large policy for his family, that he, no matter what he tried to say, was and could be described by the statistics of the life insurance company. And then inevitably, to convince him through a series of calculations that indeed Ives tried to pull the the prospect into to giving them a pad and pencil to work them out. In fact, convince that person that they inevitably had far too little life insurance. Um, Ives is a, is a famous modernist composer who uh, wrote music that was so difficult at the time that some of his biographers explained that he could, had trouble finding musicians who knew how to play it. Uh, but now is a kind of standard in the repertoire of modernist music. And uh, someone who I play from some of my classes is a piece Center Park in the Dark is a piece I really enjoy quite a bit on my own. Uh, and so I use that piece to explain the persistence of that thread of life insurance risk making being used to predict and price and value lives. Well, then at the same time, weaving in a series of other stories in which we see the ways in which that idea of valuing a life runs into roadblocks and stumbling blocks. Hmm. Hmm. And actually, two other observations uh, about what you just said. First of all, you, it sounds like you had really impressive access to archives of these private um, companies. So that's really something. And also, uh, you use music in your teaching about uh, presumably uh, things having to do with statistics, historical statistics. <laughs> oh, I'd love to say that's what's happening. No, I am. I, um... I teach a course in our core curriculum called The Challenges of Modernity, and uh, I've stolen some pieces from Emily Thompson's wonderful book, The Soundscape of Modernity, and used those to help explain some of the ways that modernist music was responding to changing the world around it. Uh, but that is fun in its own right, and I highly recommend it. The, uh, the access to archives was a great deal of luck. I got in before the financial crisis of 2007 began. Uh, and at that point, the uh, mutual, the uh, AXA Equitable, French firm AXA, had bought up basically everybody uh, that had been a major 19th century player, including the Equitable of the United States and including the Mutual of New York. And they were generous enough to open up their archives to researchers. And so I spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, since then, since the financial crisis, uh, access has become more difficult. 
I believe that. Um, a lot of the story you tell is, um, of course, you're focusing on the life insurance industry. Um, but the, some of the things that you're pointing out, sort of the ways that valuing life is used as a tool of discrimination. Um, and again, this returns after the, the late 19th century case and uh, Julia Chappelle that you're looking at. It returns again around this the period of Ives and, and the 20th century. And it seems like there's a lot of um, parallels between the life insurance industry and then other other sorts of insurance industries, and especially the health insurance industry. But one of the things that the book shows ultimately in the end, it seems to be that the health insurance uh, framing of the American debate was actually grounded on the life insurance uh, strategies and methods for calculating lives. Uh, but throughout this period, there seems to be um, a lot of parallels with these other insurance uh, sorts of insurance um, uh, programs. So I'm just wondering if you think there's something unique about life insurance or um, whether it's just emblematic of what's happening with these other kinds of industries. So in terms of what might be unique uh, in in her great book, The Classical Probability and the Enlightenment, Lorraine Destin makes the point, which is, I think, hard to argue with, that you know everyone dies. Uh, and that the mathematics work out in a certain way that, that it's difficult to work out. You, you, you're not sure that all ships will sink at sea, and it's hard to say that everyone will get sick at a certain moment, and you can't tell when or if houses will burn down, but we all die. Uh, and the, and the, so part of what the argument has often been is that that regularity is one of the things that has made, that made life insurance a place in which probability and statistics were able to find a firmer grounding earlier on than they did in other fields. Uh, but what has become clear is that the model of life insurance has made it through into other fields, it has reshaped things like health insurance, things like, as I argue in the book, the social security system, uh, but not in necessarily in the way of bringing with them smoothing, right? The best argument is about the importance of smoothing, you, because you know everyone dies, it means you can fi find and calculate these averages. What is the most interesting thing to me is the way in which it is the endless unclassing, which makes it into the social security system, which makes it into the health insurance system. It is that emphasis on individualizing and finding the uh, and preserving the equity that each individual has within the system, which is meant to share risk. Yeah, it's, uh, that's a great way to, I mean, it all basically comes back down to the uh, back around at the end to the first chapter, sort of drawing the distinction between uh, classing and smoothing. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Mira here. This is Mira. Dan, so you talked a lot about the persistence of these um, mechanisms of making a statistical subject, um, how they've persisted throughout history, largely due to the construction of risk in the life insurance industry. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we can actually apply this knowledge to our own lives, given that risk making is so deeply infiltrated in many aspects of our society. Oh, Mira, that's a great question, and the kind of one I seek so so um, perfectly to avoid. Giving actual people advice, uh, I try to predict the past, not to explain the past, and predict the future. Um, no, but I, the thing, I guess, I, what I can do is I think raise some critical questions. Uh, the more I have looked at this set of questions, the more I have become convinced that. The thing that insurance policy does, the thing that it offers, the thing that the idea of insurance offers us, 
is solidarism. It's that idea that we are all in something together, that we share together risks in the world, and that what classing does is it divides us. It um, breaks us apart. It finds invidious ways to draw distinctions. And while those distinctions can often are and usually are uh, justified by statistics, that doesn't mean that there aren't still a politics involved in making those distinctions. Uh, and that's something I think we can uh, talk further about. But most clearly in the book, I show the way in which there's racial a racial politics, or ideas of racism that are bound up in the making of those distinctions. So we should be alert always that whenever we start talking about risk making, there is the possibility or the necessity that there's a politics built into that risk making. Uh, and I guess the second thing I would say is that uh, the quantification of an individual produces numbers that can be extraordinarily helpful and useful, but that inevitably lose a great deal of information about that individual. And what we always want to be concerned about is what will those numbers then be used for and who will use them. So the extent to which we allow ourselves to be into risks, uh, I think we must also fight fervently to maintain control over the way that information about us is used uh, and limit the extent to which others have that information and can use it in ways that we don't understand. And there are legal scholars, um, people like uh, Frank Pasquale and Danielle Citron and uh, Ryan Kahlo and a whole host of other folks, Daniel Solov, who are interested in exactly those kinds of questions and they know better than I do what to actually do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I also just want to drop in here that you uh, are with the the big data. You were with the big data group at uh, the Max Planck Institute in Berlin for the history of science, which seems like it must have been a really uh, fruitful place to be to be working on the book. And your I think last substantive chapter looks at um, white data politics is what you call it. And it's interesting um, because it seems to really weave in with Tanahasi Coates's. Um, uh, work on the mortgage industry as well. So as you were saying, looking at how these different um, just ways of calculating things, of giving people things that seem to be completely uh, by the numbers, that those numbers include politics as well. Um, and so here I'm actually going to hand it over to Alonzo. Hey, Dan, this is Alonzo. Um, so in Mira's previous question, the answer that you gave to that, you talked a lot about politics and discrimination in risk-making. Uh, and I was wondering if there are still any unresolved issues within the corporation, the insurance industry that you see today, and do you have ways that you feel that they can be resolved? Oh, yeah, that's a particularly tough question. I let me let me do my best of running you through what I know. So what I know is that in the early twentieth century, there were laws in the books throughout the northern states that banned discrimination based on color. Uh, these were passed through the efforts of people like Julie Chappelle, uh, claiming that these were this is a case of rights, of civil rights, not a case of business. What the way that insurance companies, uh, for the most part, responded to this was by then refusing to sell life insurance policies to African Americans, which is in part stimulated the growth of these very important institutions, uh, black life insurance companies that became crucial. Uh, aggregators of capital, crucial forces in shaping black communities throughout the United States. Um, but what also happened with them is that they became very much smaller and smaller risk uh, 
groups and less less diverse race groups than almost any other life insurance company because they were only capable, for the most part, because of the race in the United States of selling to African Americans. Um, the troubling things are a cascade of them, but among things, among other things, is that is there's a good deal of evidence throughout a series of sources that regulators throughout the northern states in the early 20th century recognized that there was discrimination based on race going on within in companies and not i wouldn't say even turn a blind eye so much as they approved of it and thought it was appropriate uh, because they believed in fact that race uh, was the driving factor in explaining differences in mortality and therefore did not essentially abide by the logic of the laws that they were meant to be enforcing since then there have been um findings by a number of states, including New York, uh, that some major companies did, in fact, well, this, this gets complicated and this is where I feel like I need to be a lawyer to say this properly. They have findings which read to me and which uh, you, I can see find in historical sources, admit that racial discrimination was going on and led to, um, I don't know, even know if I can call it significant, but a whole bunch of money, maybe not enough, it's hard to say, being redistributed to folks who were potentially the targets of that racial discrimination. Um, I, I'm not uh, qualified to be able to really evaluate whether or not justice was done in that case, but at least an attempt at justice was made in that situation. Uh, and then the other thing we know is that in the 1960s and 70s, increasingly actuaries themselves came to fight against the idea that race should be a primary form by which life insurance uh, policies were discriminated. And there, uh, it looks to me from a very cursory reading of the sources amongst these actuaries that in fact it was the civil rights movement that swayed them, that they were convinced by the civil rights movement that in fact the distinction between white and black was not a real one and that their their statistics were picking up other differences and that they could not and should not continue to use that uh, that category to sell policies, whether or not they might still be disproportionately selling substandard policies to African Americans because they use other sorts of criteria is a question that is beyond my ken, but something that would be uh, something that individuals should be aware of and be looking into potentially. Well, you the book brings us from the from the Gilded Age to the New Deal, and you've just uh, now pretty impressively brought us uh, up well beyond uh, beyond that too. And you've been incredibly generous with your time. For our the last question, just to wrap it up, I'm going to hand it over to Leah. Um, yeah, Dan, we were wondering if you could uh, discuss a little bit um, about why you chose um, the photograph you did for the cover of this book. Um, what was it about this particular photograph um, that you knew? you know, this was going to be uh, the picture that you were going to use um, for this book. Yeah. Well, so this is, again, one of these moments where the universe smiled upon me, or rather kind of smirked if we got to look at the guy's face we were talking about. Uh, I was at the Max Planck Institute, and I was asked to help design a poster about my research because there was a visiting scientific committee that was coming to evaluate the work of the Institute. And this I'm like, Oh no, just, I'm busy writing a book. Could you get out of my hair? I've got stuff to do, but fine. You're, you've given me this amazing intellectual community. I'll do this thing you're asking me to do. And in the process of looking for uh, an image that would be useful, I happened upon this image via the library of Congress and 
uh, suddenly my, my kind of life shook. Uh, let me explain for listeners what this image is. Uh, you see a surprisingly dashing man sitting shirtless with suspenders, uh, staring out at us with a, a kind of beautiful gaze. The photo by Dorothea Lang, who could take amazing photos, in this case did so for the Farm Security Administration in the late 1930s. He's staring out at us in a way that is incredibly engaging. And also, I uh, makes, imagine makes it easier for people to try to pick up the book in the first place. And then in the background, we see his wife. Um, they are in a ramshackle tent, apparently sewn together from a whole bunch of different little bits of fabric. We see him sitting, them sitting on logs, uh, a couple pots, and a dirt floor. We understand this to be migrants. Uh, we look at the caption, which Lang provides us, and it reads, unemployed lumber worker goes with his wife to the bean harvest. So we come to understand that this photo taken in 1937, oh, actually, I want to make sure I get that right, in 1939, excuse me, that photo taken in 1939, uh, is showing us people who are in the midst of the Great Depression, who are victims in the sense of the Great Depression, a man who was formerly involved in a fairly dangerous trade, uh, traveling along with his wife, who's doing the work. She is the bean picker. Um, and what I increasingly saw was that this was a metaphor in many ways for what was happening in the book. The book in, increasingly is explaining how a series of economic crises made it possible for new lives to be made into risks. And so we're seeing that here with the depression. The depression about, is about to create a, a space for the Social Security Administration to be started. Previously, it had been the panic of 1873 that opened up risk to more people. Uh, the Armstrong hearings we've talked about and the, its place here. Uh, but then the final thing that readers should know is that the closer you look, and Dorothy Lang points this here, she says, no social security number tattooed on his arm. And indeed, it says SSA, uh, and then uh, the number, which I can only uh, kind of passingly read at the moment here, I have it in the text. Uh, and there we see essentially someone who's tattooed their social security number onto their body. And it's for me, the kind of perfect metaphor of what is happening through risk at this moment, that the individual uh, is identifying with the, the statistic, is touching his body in the same way that increasingly risk-making was reshaping the bodies of individuals by the early 20th century. And through the social security system, we now see a new aspect of humans' lives being made into risks, their economic lives, something which... Yeah, surprisingly, we knew very little about in the United States about individual economic lives until the social security system was created in part on the model of life insurance uh, to track individual economic lives throughout their existence. It's such an insightful reading of a, a really classic image. It's really fantastic. Um, and it really does capture the themes in the book so well. Dan, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it um, and hope everybody who's listening right now will uh, go out and check out the book. It's really fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mira, Leah, Danielle, Faber, Alonzo, Rachel, Julianne, Betsy, and Laura. That was great. 